1: Thank you for listening to the History of World War II Podcast, Episode 165. Meanwhile, back in North Africa, Operation Crusader, Part 1. Back on Episode 128, after the failed Operation Battleaxe to push Rommel back and relieve Tobruk, and after a successful but bloody Operation Exporter that saw the end of Vichy resistance in Syria, C&C Middle East Archibald Wavell had his command taken from him. He would be replaced by c c India Claude Auchinleck. Basically, the two men were exchanging positions. But the Middle East had the pivotal role. Just one day after Wavell was relieved of command, on June 22, 1941, Nazi Germany invaded Soviet Russia. Suddenly, London and Cairo knew that Western Russia would be Hitler's obsession, if only until Moscow fell, probably sometime that winter. So Auchinleck's command was now truly night and day different than what Wavell had been dealing with. Yet so too was how Churchill and the new C&C Middle East saw Operation Barbarossa affecting the immediate future of Egypt. Churchill wrote to Auchinleck on July first, nineteen forty one, You take up your great command at a period of crisis. After all the facts have been laid before you, it will be for you to decide whether to renew the offensive in the Western Desert, and if so, when. Yet, as we saw at the end of Episode one twenty eight, the prime minister would come to rue these words. Auchinleck wanted to use the reprieve that Barbarossa would give him to have more men, planes, tanks, and guns sent to him so he could train them and only then move against Rommel, who surely had to be far from Hitler's mind for the foreseeable future. Whereas Churchill wanted the Western Desert Force to move against the Axis forces threatening Egypt now. But as the Prime Minister was about to find out, Auchinleck was not Wable, the latter going quietly about his business of command, probably too quietly for Churchill. Instead, the new CNC flew to London, calmly and expertly explained the reality of the situation on the ground. And as Churchill found out, you can't browbeat facts. Now that Auchinleck was firmly in control, He established the parameters needed to launch an offensive, his offensive. He needed two, preferably three, armored divisions, control of the skies, for the Royal Navy to make sure that Rommel was not reinforced, and for Syria behind him to remain calm. Churchill groaned under the weight of the conditions put before him. To his thinking, anyone could have won North Africa with those odds. Why, did they need a general then? But that was oversimplifying the situation, and the Prime Minister knew it. Thus, he backed down and had to settle for an offensive scheduled sometime in early November, to be called Operation Crusader. Churchill was most displeased, but at least now he had a realistic attack date. So, his job now, as the political leader, was to give Auchinleck everything he needed to start his attack. Or, at the very least, to remove any obstacles for him to not renew the offensive. Gambling with the home defensive disposition yet again, Major General Willoughby Norrie's 1st Armored Division would be sent to Alexandria ASAP. First, its 22nd Armored Brigade would go out sometime in September, the rest to follow the next month. Also, the new Air CNC Arthur Tedder's Order of Battle would be raised from its current 34 and a half squadrons to 52. This was to be completed by the time the rest of the 1st Armored Division showed up, sometime in mid-October. Fortunately, for the Allies concerned, IE Auchinleck's northern or back door, Syria was pacified by mid-July as General Jumbo Wilson pressed forward with his customary effectiveness, as covered in episode 128. Then, ironically, the various military men and Churchill did something they were not very good at. They waited. To make it worse, their reprieve from the German forces seemed to be coming to a close, as Army Group North was soon within 50 miles of Leningrad, Army Group Center was surrounding and destroying large pockets of men. Any one of them could have made the difference in North Africa. And Army Group South was just outside of Kiev. But strategic commands can't always get worse, and did so for CNC and Auchinleck. The French colonial army in Syria, besides giving the Commonwealth forces a hard time, also had the job of checking any Germans that may have come south from the Caucasus. But now that their officers and NCOs were gone, with the armistice signed by General Dentz of Vichy, France, those forces disintegrated. Yet C&C Middle East needed those passages blocked. So, weakening his defensive position in front of Rommel even further, he assigned three infantry divisions with no tanks, to Syria, Iraq, and Palestine. In hindsight, this may seem unrealistic, but during that summer and fall, the aspect of Germans smashing into Russia and then turning south seemed not only real, but a distinct possibility. Yet, there was some good news to balance out this possible bleak future. Back on the home island, war supplies were increasing, due to the Lend-Lease material coming from the United States, as that program had been made into law the previous March. Of course, it was not as much as it could have been with the U.S. trying to rearm themselves while supplying Russia, even with the number of men in uniform there seeming to disappear by the tens of thousands. Still, it seemed that whenever Crusader was launched, the British would have more weapons than the Axis. The question would then come down to quality. To further qualify and quantify what the U.S. would be sending across the Atlantic and how it was to be used, President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill met off Newfoundland. The former arrived in the USS Augusta, the latter aboard the HMS Prince of Wales. The meeting, taking place in August of forty-one would be remembered as the Atlantic Charter and attempted to set the Allies' goals for the post-war world. As force had to be used to stop the Axis, the Charter made it clear that no one on their side would seek to gain territory against the wishes of the people. It would strive for better social and economic conditions for all. Its most well-known clauses contain the phrase, freedom from want and fear, freedom of the seas, and abandonment of the use of force. Yet, Stalin would not sign the charter. The pragmatic Soviet premier called it an empty gesture, which helped him little. And yet, what supplies flowed to North Africa was not what it could have been for a very simple reason. The British, who had been in on losing France, who had not been able to help Poland, nor the Netherlands, nor Norway, were not expected to win in North Africa by the Americans. They weren't even expected to make a good show of it. As Harry Hopkins' special adviser to Roosevelt wrote, No one in Britain appreciated the feeling which existed throughout the U.S. military command that the Middle East was a liability. From which the British should withdraw, that the problems of the Middle East, the interests of the Muslim world, and the inner relationships between Egypt and India were not well understood in the United States. And yet the Americans were now in the fray, at least for a penny. The pound would come by the end of the year after Pearl Harbor. So, missions were sent to North Africa to assess the British position and thus replace impressions with facts. Of course, the man representing FDR was the most important, and that was Avril Harriman. A special envoy to Europe for FDR, Harriman would eventually become the U.S. ambassador to the USSR, and then to the United Kingdom. Harriman traveled to Cairo and had the red carpet laid out for him. The British were big on that. Churchill had done the same thing for Harry Hopkins after the start of the Battle of Britain. When the American came to visit Churchill, the Prime Minister told his staff, Well now, if any red carpet has survived the Blitz, by all means, roll it out for Mr. Hopkins. But more than fine wine and food, Auchinleck put before Harriman, his positions and his plans in a general sense. And like Hopkins before, Harriman left duly impressed. Before too long, the Trans-Africa Air Reinforcement Route was established, from the United States via Brazil to Lagos in Nigeria, finishing in Cairo. The first American bombers arrived that October, which meant that Crusader would not benefit much from Lend-Lease. But If the Commonwealth forces were still around after the coming offensive, future operations surely would. Another reason Crusader could not commence sooner was there weren't enough of what was needed already in Britain to ship out. To be sure, some 10,000 trucks had been deposited by July, along with a lot of other non-weapons. But vital items, such as medium tanks and anti-tank weapons, did not exist in Britain in any serious numbers that summer. As for the Americans, they were gearing up at an incredible rate in that same period. But it would be wrong to say that they were doing a better job than their British cousins. After all, the industrial plants of the United States had hindsight. The experiences of British and German tank battles to study to the best degree they could, after action reports were sent to the Americans by the British. Thus, their tank designs had already had their trial and error periods. And, of course, the United States wasn't being bombed. However, America did have superior mass production techniques. In March of 1941, the United States had 16 medium tanks. Period. Around that same time, the medium tank, the General Grant, was only a prototype, and the light tank, the General Stuart, was just starting to roll off the assembly line. However, just a few months later, eighty four General Stuart light tanks were arriving in Egypt. But these were not what Auchinleck and his staff wanted, they grumbled to London quietly. However, the Stuarts more than proved themselves. In desert trials that July. They were faster than their German counterparts and offered more protection for their crews than the Italian light tanks. Their problem was their relatively small 37mm gun and the bad gas mileage, only able to get 40 miles on a full tank. Still, the tank weak, almost non existent British of North Africa were happy to have these honeys, as they were dubbed. Of course, the Commonwealth forces still hoped their heavier and more powerful medium cousins would show up soon. Sadly, what the U.S. could not give the Western Desert Army of the Nile were anti-tank guns. They simply did not exist in the United States at the moment. Britain would have to rely on homemade guns for Operation Crusader. The Germans were able to match the equipment problems the British were having with their own personnel and logistics problems. Rommel's superior, von Paulus, believed he was helping the Desert Fox by appointing Lieutenant General Alfred Gauz to the position of German Liaison Officer to the Italian's North African Command. And following Gauz was a large staff. But the appointment pleased neither Italian, nor German. Marshal Italo Garibaldi, Supreme Commander at North Africa, was upset at having another German within the works, and Rommel saw Gauze as a rifle, who could only gunk up the works of getting him supplies. What ensued was a political battle that easily matched the ugly fighting in the desert. But in the end, Rommel stood victorious. Gauz was demoted to Rommel's chief of staff, and his large staff was now morphed into Rommel's headquarters Panzer Group Africa staff. This was all well and good, but if it didn't help Rommel get more supplies, and quickly, then it was an intellectual exercise, nothing more. And the key to supplies was the Luftwaffe. It was their job to protect Italian shipping coming from the peninsula. Yet, as a number of planes had to be sent back to Russia, German air power was not what it had been, nor was it now, enough. The British were able to send supplies and men to Malta a bit more securely. Soon there were some twenty two thousand soldiers in its garrison, as well as seventy five aircraft of various kinds. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio, with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance.com. The number one financial destination, Yahoo Finance.com. That's Yahoo Finance.com. And now that Malta was strong enough to go back on the offensive, along with six months of rations, which seemed like a godsend to those who had suffered previously, but would suffer much worse in the future. Italian shipping started to suffer all the more, accordingly. In June, the Axis lost 16,000 tons of equipment to British naval and air power. In September, that number jumped to 64,000 tons. A big part of this increase was due to the introduction of search radars for the Wellington bombers on the island. Moreover, the naval torpedo bombers now had homing devices placed on them, thus vastly increasing their effectiveness when the improved Wellingtons found an enemy ship. Admiral Cunningham had also set up a new convoy raiding group called Force K, which consisted of the cruisers Penelope, a.k.a. the future HMS Pepperpot, for all the holes she would have in her, the Aurora, and two destroyers, under the command of Captain Agnew. The captain had one of his better nights on November 8th. After a Martin Maryland aircraft, officially a Martin medium bomber from the U.S., but dubbed the Maryland by the British, had spotted an Italian convoy, Agnew set out from Malta with his forest K, They left around dusk and worked their way closer to the enemy ships, all the while keeping the Italian vessels in between themselves and a rising moon. This worked brilliantly. The enemy vessels were well lit, and Agnew then gave the order to fire. Within 45 minutes, all seven merchant ships and one destroyer had disappeared beneath the waves. The other five enemy destroyers, quickly, and probably a little too quickly, headed for safer waters. Force K then made for Malta. Only later would they learn that there had been an additional two Italian cruisers and four more destroyers in the area. But they had left just as soon as the firing had started. Cunningham's opinion of the Regia Marina went down with those Italian merchantmen back on the German side, as long as army groups north, center, and south were moving, pushing rather, east, Hitler was content to let others decide what happened in the Mediterranean. After all, Rommel was not expected to be resupplied enough to hit the Commonwealth forces until January of '42. Then Tobruk would fall and the Suez would be in Axis hands, which would alter the war greatly in favor of Germany and Italy. And yet, even though Barbarossa had started off during the third week of June, by mid-August, even Hitler, through his hatred of communism and Stalin, could not ignore the losses his army had sustained, the logistic nightmares that were now a daily occurrence, and the simple fact that, as far as his men had gone into Russia, there seemed to be so much further to go. So, being a realist, and the day would come when Hitler would be anything but, he wrote a secret memorandum on August 28th that said it was possible his war against Russia might not be over by winter. This paper was showed to very few people. For Hitler, this possibility could be the beginning of his worst nightmare. If Russia did not fall, then there could be no Nazi charge out of the Caucasus mountains south to the Middle East. This could allow the British, as banged up as they were, to retake the initiative in '42. London could resupply the Western Desert Army enough to push Rommel back to Tripoli. Then, if the Americans threatened or outright bribed the Vichy French or whatever side the French were on in North Africa, then the entire theater and the Mediterranean would be lost to the Axis. Being so close to Italy, no, this could not be allowed to happen. Hitler could not change what was going on in Russia. Lord knows he was trying, but he could do something about the Mediterranean, thus protecting his ally and his own weak underbelly. Bringing the naval high command into his office, Hitler ordered them to retake control of the central Mediterranean. He wanted subs from the Atlantic pulled in. He wanted torpedo boats from the Baltic pulled in. He wanted General Kesselring's Luftflotte II, the second German Air Force, pulled in from Russia, when winter would cancel out most flights anyways, and sent to Sicily. And he wanted Kesselring to be in charge of the entire area, for him to become the C&C South commander. The Navy respectfully howled their protests. They had Britain on the ropes. They were sinking tons of shipping that was trying to sustain the island. Now was not the time to let up. But then they got the look and said, Yavul. The naval men left the room unhappy and scratching their heads. But when Rommel heard of this transition, he was ecstatic. Now that he had Hitler on his side, more or less, the Desert Fox changed his thinking about his entire theater. Why wait until January 42 to take to Brook? Gaza's staff informed him that if he wanted to go on the offensive in October or November, he would have the means. Axis intelligence had heard rumblings that the British were going to attack him some time around then. If he could move east and take Tobruk, that could allow his armies to smash the British, thus spoiling their offensive. And if he did it well enough, he might be able to keep going deep into Egypt itself. But Rommel was no fool. Moreover, he was a realist. As much as he wanted to drive his men against the Allies, he had to know more of what they were about. What did they have? And most importantly, where was it? All this could be answered, he decided, with a raid. Heading out on September 14, 1941, Rommel had three columns advance towards the enemy. Traveling with von Ravenstein's 5th Light Division, Renamed the 21st Panzer Division, the three groups of tanks, trucks, and towed guns would penetrate into Egypt, hopefully deep into Egypt, attack a supposed British supply depot, take what could be gotten, and test the metal of the British defenses. Not to mention Rommel's reformed forces. After failing to take Tobruk but beating off Wavell's brevity in axe. Rommel had ordered that his tanks, anti-tank gun crews, and artillery units practice close coordination drills. It was his own version of the British jock columns, yet his had tanks. The supply depot was southwest of Marceau-Metroux, and if all went well, Rommel's empty supply trucks, brought along for this very purpose, would leave full of British goods. The first thing the 21st Panzer Division ran into were South African armored cars, keeping an eye on the frontier. Dutifully, the South Africans reported sighting the Germans, and then slowly pulled back. As they were protected by jock columns from the 7th Support Group, if the Germans charged ahead, it was their job to shield the Africans as they pulled back to a British minefield near Sofafi itself northwest of the supply depot. Yet the Germans did not pick up the pace. Rommel was not going to charge in until he knew what was before him. Not that it mattered. When the three axis columns reached the supply depot, all they found were a few empty bully beef tins and a few bottles, also empty. It was then, feeling the disappointment that many of the Germans realized their mouths were parched. Having reached their objective unmolested, the tanks and trucks radioed Rommel to let him know they were low on fuel, obviously hoping to fill up at that moment with British gasoline. Yet, there was none. Just then, the guns of the nearby but still falling back support group stopped falling back and opened up with their 25-pounder field guns. Rommel wasn't panicked, but became a bit so when the RAF showed up and started a conservative carpet bombing campaign. Rommel's men fired back, but didn't seem to be hitting anything. Meanwhile, one by one, his tanks and trucks were being taken out. Clearly, there were no supplies to be had. Clearly, his men were not going to get a chance to test their new battle tactics. And, clearly, Rommel was not going to learn anything meaningful of British intentions or dispositions. Yet, that last part was not completely true. As he turned his columns around, they would meet their oncoming fuel trucks further west Rommel convinced himself that the British were not ready to attack him, not ready to assist those trapped at Tobruk. How he came to this conclusion is still unclear. So, having learned what he needed to know, but not really, the Desert Fox would get on with reducing Tobruk, not overly concerning himself with whatever Auchinleck was doing further east.
0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: Greetings everyone from Central Virginia. So we have not abandoned Stalin. Just wanted to get back to the action as uh, some of you have requested, and I certainly miss it too. So what I'm going to do is a balancing act between Stalin Bio Catch up what's going on in North Africa up until the end of the year. Catch up what's going on in the Atlantic uh, up until the end of the year. Probably visit London again. The bombing that's going on, and maybe some of the what's going on in the other countries uh, that have been taken over by the Third Reich. So um, maybe just kind of balance it all out with Stalin. Get to the end of the year, 1941, and then decide: stop? Do we stop and then go to the Pacific with Pearl Harbor, or do we keep going uh, with Moscow? So. I hope that made sense, but that's the general game plan. So um, I just want to say hi and thank you to a couple of my new members. Uh, Simon F. from East Sussex, UK. Eric P. from Holland, Michigan. Gregory S. from Honolulu, Hawaii. Michael J. from Centerville, Virginia. Uh, Hey, hey neighbor. Uh, Mark P. from Oak Hills, California. Brian K. from Wyandotte, Michigan. I'm sure I butchered that. Uh, This one didn't have a name. It's the Crazy Moose and Friends from Crestview, Florida. Uh, David J. Sorry, David, not sure where you're from, Um, but we did get your password thing worked out, so good on you. Uh, Ashley W. from Raleigh, North Carolina. Hello, neighbor. Andrew D. from Devon, UK. Tim L. from Wellington, New Zealand. Carl B. from Tasmania, Australia. Uh, Alan S. from Oxenford, Australia. Deborah M. from... Alameda, California, Constance B. from Pasadena, California, Gary L. from St. Nao, Natos, no, no, that's not right, Naotes, UK, <laughs> sorry about that, Gary, um, Anthony O. from Cockedal, Denmark, I'm sure I butchered that one, the Smithy Group, Wilmette, uh, Illinois, Home S. from Brooklyn, New York, Phil E. from Surrey, UK, Wendy G. from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Travis B. Sorry, Travis, not sure where you're from. David W. from Kent, UK. Chelsea K. from Spencerport, New York. Robert F. Not sure where you're from, Robert. Uh, Zishi Y. from Pleasanton, California. And uh, for those who have donated, Daniel M. from Los Angeles, California. Ross B. from Coon Rapids, Michigan or Minnesota, sorry about that. Uh, Malcolm W. from Kalingbrun, Austria. Kalingbrun, Austria. So thank you very much to everybody. For those of you who have become members recently, I will get to your names next time. But again, just keep in mind, we're going to bounce around between Stalin, North Africa, the Atlantic, visit what's been going on in London and other parts of Europe under the Nazi regime. And then we'll decide which direction to go um, from there. So again, thank you all very much for listening. And um, as always, take care. Stop composing.